Happy Easter. What a great day. Let's pray. Father, I pray you'd help us to hear not some words from uh, a pastor or a teacher, that you would help us hear your voice in our life this day. What an incredible, incredible amount of love that you have for us as people. Give us ears to hear, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Speaking of hearing husbands and wives, have you ever wondered why your spouse doesn't hear you, doesn't maybe listen? Yeah, I think a few of you have. Um, parents, have you ever wondered why your kids you know, don't hear you like you wish they did? It could happen as teachers with classrooms. It can happen with employees, with um, employers or employers, back to employees, coaches, all over the place, this whole hearing thing. And more than likely, it's really not due to the ability to actually hear physically with your ears. I remember when I was in my early 30s, my wife and I were at the state fair. And as we were walking along, we went by a booth that, that on it was advertising a free hearing check. And my wife, very gracious and loving and kind as she is, she, she said, um, you know, honey, w- would you be willing to get your ears and your hearing checked? And I said, what? Um, and I had it checked and they did all the things. And she was sitting there with me when the technician said, you know, he's got perfect hearing. And so, ma'am, he has a condition we often refer to here as selective hearing, which is exactly what we all have. I mean, really, we all have selective hearing. That's how hearing works. We're able to tune into that and let other things fade to the background. Our ability to hear is a miraculous gift. It is it is what I call this marvelous gift of hearing. And and I share this with you because in the past about five years or so, I've lost about 70, 60 percent of my hearing in my left ear. It's a wonderful thing at night when I put my good ear to the pillow and I can just tune out everything. Not so good if a tornado's coming, though. Um, and did you know the ear is this miraculous gift that God, I mean, you can put a hearing aid and other things, and it doesn't, you know, some of you have had this situation, it doesn't come close to the natural ability of the ear to hear. Did you know that a piano has 88 keys, but each of your ears has a range of 1,500, 1,500 keys? Did you know that our ears are so finely tuned that you can actually hear the blood running through your vessels? Did you know that the outside of your ear can catch up to 73,000 vibrations per second? Our hearing isn't usually the issue. It's what we choose to tune into. It's what grabs our attention. It's what we deem most important at the moment. And this is true for everybody. No one's excluded in this. Because that which we consider to be most important, that which we value, which is our priority at the moment, whatever that that is, gets the center stage in our minds. Everything else has an ability for us to let it fade into the background. You know, Michelangelo observed this when he visited several art galleries in the cities that he was traveling through across Europe. And on this tour, as he was going from art gallery to art gallery, he was deeply impressed by the overwhelming number of paintings that showed Jesus on the cross. It seemed to be front and center in the minds of those who were artists. 
And so Michelangelo asked, as he was with some other artists, why are the art galleries filled with so many pictures of Christ upon the cross? Why do artists seem to concentrate on this passing episode as if it were the last word, kind of the final scene in Christ's life? And they were wondering, well, explain Michelangelo. And so he did. He said, Christ dying on the cross, really, you think about it, lasted only a few hours. But to the end of an of unending eternity, Christ is alive. Jesus lives. He has risen from the dead and defeated death. In other words, the crucifixion, which we believe is vital and critical to our salvation, it does grab our attention because of what it has done for us and, and, and the value in what that penalty that was paid and, and the anguish and, and all that the cross means that Jesus did for us just so overwhelms us that we can't imagine this incredible love. And it does grab our attention and rightly should. But yet there's another event which we celebrate this morning. That is equally as important. In fact, Paul said it was so important that if this did not occur, if this event was not true, our faith, our trust, even in this, the cross, would be futile. It would be without meaning. It wouldn't have the ability to do what was said to be done. And so the resurrection is incredibly important. And what I want us to do this morning is just to understand what the value of the resurrection is and and. Just understand how important it was, not only today, but even back then, in the days that Christ lived. Why should we give ear this day to this important event? Why let other things fade to the background? Well, the resurrection is so important because it puts front and center these three truths. And I want to share these truths with you today. One is it it puts front and center. It establishes very clearly that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And not only that, it establishes, again, Jesus has the power he claimed to have. And finally, I just want to share with you, it also establishes that Jesus does what he promises to do. Without the resurrection, who he claimed to be, the power that he claimed to have, and the promises that he gave would be, as Paul said, vain and futile. Did you know that the resurrection was so important in that time, in that moment after Christ's death that the chief priests and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they did everything they could so that that resurrection would never occur. In fact, when you read Matthew, and as we've been going through this, the resurrection establishes when we look at this that Jesus is who he claimed to be. No amount of false information, misinformation, lies or anything can keep this truth down. And so when you read Matthew, in Matthew, which we've had the opportunity, and I just have had such joy being able to read this gospel and to go through this and to teach this, as you get to these final chapters, what's so interesting is you begin to see that Matthew is writing a polemic. He's giving a defense. He's kind of saying, you need to understand that there are a bunch of lies. There's misinformation that's beginning to occur. So I'm just going to establish for you exactly what happened so that you and people have done this all throughout history can can understand exactly the veracity of this of this event and its truth. And so as you get to this, you find that as you begin right before the the resurrection even occurs, right immediately after the death of Christ, listen to what Matthew writes in chapter 27, verses 62 through 66. It says in, and I'm using the messenger after sundown, which 
in, in the New International Version, it's just a little more precise, the day of preparation. He doesn't say the da- Sabbath. He's saying right at that time, right as, they were, as Jesus was being put in the grave, the chief priests, Pharisees, religious leaders had a concern. After sundown, the high priests and Pharisees arranged a meeting with Pilate. This is the second meeting they have. They said, sir, we just remembered that the liar announced while he was still alive. It was just coming to our mind that the liar said when he was still alive that after three days I will be raised. We've got to get to that tomb and see it it, to be sealed until the third day. And there's a good chance, Pilate, they say to me, his disciples will come and steal the corpse and then go around saying he's risen from the dead. And then we'll be worse off than before the final deceit surpassing the first. If if the the cry that he was Messiah was was, you know, proved now incredible, just what happens if the resurrection occurs, it really validates that he claimed who he said he was. And so Pilate said to them, you can have a guard. Go ahead and secure it the best you can. So they went out and secured the tomb, sealing the stone and posting guards. Do you understand the intention of what's going on in this very moment? This is before Jesus has ever resurrected. They wanted no hint of a resurrected Jesus. So they went to Pilate and they requested that they could have a guard, that they could put a seal. And putting a seal on there, a Roman seal, which Pilate allowed them to have, meant there would be punishment by death if you ever broke it. And they knew how important this resurrection was. The potential of the resurrection was front and central in their minds. They had heard what Jesus said. And they had reasoned that as long as the body of Jesus was still in the tomb, it would crush the power of this movement. Because they were well aware that um, Jesus dying in their mind, saying he was the Messiah, dying a criminal's death, and then being put in this grave and put in this tomb... He was like a lot of other messiahs. You don't realize it, but in that time of Christ, in those hundred years before even Christ, there were lots of messiahs. In fact, Rome at one time through Galilee took one of the leaders and then all his followers and put them up on crosses in order to stop the movement. And it had a way of doing that. That's exactly what is happening here. But their concern is just this. If a resurrection occurs, this movement will have life again. Because they believed what Jesus said when he said, put me to death, I'll be raised in three days. Take this temple and destroy it. And it will be built again. They knew that they had to keep any lie in their mind that Jesus rose from the dead from ever spreading. If this were to happen, as they said, then we'll be worse off than before. The final deceit surpassing the first. So that's why they go to Pilate. They want a Roman guard and Pilate, as you read this, almost kind of makes fun of them. Look at at these words in verse 65. Here's Pilate's answer. It's really quite cynical, so I'll put it in kind of my words here. He says, you were afraid of this man when he's alive. Come on, guys. Now he's dead and you are still afraid? By all means, secure the tomb as tightly as possible. If you think that will help, but use your own police. In verse 66, we read, so they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting a guard. Now, catch the pictures. Here's what happens. They go to Pilate. Pilate says you can do this. They run to the tomb. They go to the tomb. And this is what Matthew wants us to understand. This is well known. This is not some kind of little backstory. This story was being made known. They went to the tomb. They looked in the tomb. They had opened it, looked in, saw the body there, put the, thing, the stone back in, sealed it, and posted a guard so that there would be no possibility of a resurrection. 
What I think is interesting, they probably went home that night. Can you imagine how they feel? They probably went home and they put their head on the pillow and they go, this guy is finally, we got it all sealed up. And they finally go to bed and they can rest well. But to their surprise, in a matter of hours, Jesus would be waking from his nap. And they had no idea. They had no idea. They thought a two-ton stone, a trained guard, a Roman seal could keep Jesus in the grave. But Jesus is who he claimed to be. Psalm 2 tells us that God sits in heaven and laughs at our feeble attempts to control the eternal. He laughs at us when we think in some way that we can either with our own will or with our combined will, with even the will of hell itself, stand against God. In fact, in Psalm 2, it says in verse 1, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. This one, Jesus, is who he said he is. He is the king. He is the one eternal. He is my son. He is God in flesh. Therefore, this is a messianic psalm, be wise, be warned. Serve the Lord with fear. Celebrate his rule with trembling. And this interesting word in verse 12, kiss his son. That's an interesting thing because in that day, with, and we've seen it with kings. They see it with the Pope, people of personage and people of authority. They would have a ring and one of the ways that you would show yourself as one who pays homage, who surrenders, who, who shows the fact that you need to submit your life to their will is you bend down and you kiss their ring. And so God says in heaven, kiss the son. Or he will be angry. With a life that's non, unsubmitted to God, which leads with your own will against his will, it will lead to destruction. The resurrection is so important. These religious leaders knew it to be important. They were well aware that if Jesus were alive, Jesus would be exactly who he said he was. He was God's son, the king. Not just the king of this earth, but the king of heaven and earth. Because all authority has been given to him. He'll say after he resurrects and he shares with his, people, his followers. And they just wanted to say, look, you know, we can prove to you that Jesus isn't who he said he is because, look, we can just go to the tomb and point it out. But in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Paul, a former Pharisee, one who was in league with these people, writes, Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. So the importance of the resurrection is this. It establishes the very claim that Jesus had said when he was here. It declared Jesus to be who he said he is. It's also important because it also tells us and establishes that Jesus has the power he claimed to have. And Jesus did all kinds of things when he was there on that earth. But the one thing that was incredibly important that all men had faced is, is this whole matter of death. You know, death has a way of, 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 of what I would call putting finality to all your plans, right? Everything changes in the face of that. No amount of man's effort, I think, is what uh, this resurrection tells us, could keep Jesus from doing what he has the power to do. So it's Sunday morning, it's early, it's dawn. I was up this morning early as I saw the sun rising over the, that uh, landscape. And I thought of these women who were on their way to the tomb. Listen to what it says um, in Matthew 27:61, because there were people who were saying in that time, well, the, the, the women were just lost. They were, you know, they didn't really know where the tomb was. They got, you know, a little foggy and got to the wrong one and they got all excited about it. Thought they saw an angel. 
Listen to what it says in verse 61 of 27. As Joseph of Arimathea placed Jesus' body in the newly hewn tomb, it says Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there across from the tomb. They knew exactly where it was. So Matthew continues the story in verse 20 in chapter 28, verse one and four. After the Sabbath, at the dawn of the first day of the week, because they didn't go during the Sabbath because you weren't to travel according to good Jewish rules. They couldn't go later that night, even though the, the, the Pharisees went ahead and did and established things the night before. So that day is this day where all is dark and they get up early in the morning as the light is rising in order to go to prepare the body. And it says. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went in to look at the tomb. And there was a, a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothes were like white as snow. And the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Whenever I read this, I have to stop there. I just I love that little scene. You have this incredible power of of God, Jesus himself who even in death has the incredible power to raise himself from the dead. We're going to look at that in a moment. But what's so interesting is you see the power displayed. The earthquakes in the seal breaks. Well, you know when you break the seal, anyone who's breaking the seal is punishable by death, by Rome. And it's not going to be a pretty sight. But you know what? Jesus has no fear of that. I mean, you put a guy to death once, what are you going to do the second time? It's kind of a double jeopardy for the religious leaders. So you don't even have the earthquakes and, and the, the seal breaks. And the second thing you see, which I love about it, is the earthquakes and the seal breaks. The stone actually, in the Greek, says it kind of gets flipped out from the groove. You see, this stone was one that was a two-ton stone that would, you would roll in front of the tomb. And so you would get this thing, and it would take a couple people to put this thing in place. And as it would roll down into place, and then you would have to actually roll it up, which would take a lot more people to get this thing up. But what it says is the earthquake, and it actually flipped it out so that the angel is sitting on it. So this stone is now this slab. And he's sitting on this slab, and it's actually the power of God is so powerfully great that it flips it out like a tiddlywink. Now, in saying that and writing that, I was thinking to myself, I date myself right there. How many remember tiddlywinks? Raise your hand. Those of you who raise your hand, explain it at some time to the person next to you. It's a little plastic, you just flip it, and, and that's what happens. And then the third thing, I love this. These trained professional guards are scared to death. They see this angel like lightning, his clothes as white as snow, and they are not just speechless. They begin to shake to the point that they freeze. I don't know how they froze, if they're like this or whatever, but they're, they're frozen. I share this because whenever I read this, I'm reminded of a story that my daughter Kenzie and I, when we were down and we had this little hobby farm, we were down in the barn and we had this... This banty rooster named Henry, and, and he's just this mean old cuss. He loved to do kamikaze attacks on your ankles and stuff. You know what I mean? And I think we were a little upset with him one day, and we were chasing him around. And as we chased him into, we chase him into this hay bale. And if you could just, if there's a hay bale here, he's like halfway lodged in with a leg out like this. I'm not a farm kid. I, I was certain. Because we sat there for a few minutes and just looked at the thing. We, I was certain that we had scared this thing to death. I, I thought its heart had stopped. And so we start to go do something. And, and this thing, all of a sudden, we see the leg go, boop, pull out and just took off. 
And I sit there and I think of it. I can just imagine these guards. And they come up to the tomb. You know, I said a moment ago, I stop at this point every time I read this because I'm so impressed that not only does the resurrection establish who Jesus claimed he was, that he was the son of God, God in flesh, but he also established the fact that the power that he claimed to have, he actually had. Do you know that before he ever went to his death, we read in John chapter 10, and I'm sure he didn't just say this once. I'm sure he said it a couple of different times. He said to the people as they were standing out there in the field, they were looking at this shepherd's corral with the sheep in it. And they saw the gate where the where the shepherd themselves would stand. And he says, you know what, you guys, I'm the gate with regard to true life. And not only that, I'm really like the good shepherd because a lot of people who come along in your life are not the kind of people who will invest themselves in such a way that they will be committed to you to the end. They're not the kind of people that when push comes to shove, a lot of times people take off and they run and they hide. But I'm not like that kind of shepherd. In fact, I'm not like the kind of shepherd that if you just run away and you go off on your own, you wander on your own and you, you get lost in your own sin and you're out there. I'm not the kind of shepherd that just says, oh, that's one. It doesn't matter. I've got 99 others. I'm the kind of shepherd that will go after. I'm the kind of shepherd that will actually put my life on a cross and put my life on the line for you. And then he makes this really clear. He wants them to know the incredible power that he has because he's preparing them for this truth that he will die on a cross and someday this Son of God, God in flesh, is going to resurrect. So he says to them this, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. That's an incredible statement, isn't it? I will put my life down. I will actually die. And not only will I die, I will actually raise myself from that death. That's the kind of power I have. This command I received from my father. I'm not even doing this on my own will. And the Jews who heard these words were again divided. They were split. Many of them said, this guy's raving mad. He's demon-possessed. Why listen to him? Give him front and center stage in your life. But others said there are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Because listen, demons don't go around opening the eyes of wine. They're happy to have people suffer. And Jesus displays his incredible power. And I believe the stone was pushed away, the seal broken, and the guards frozen. They weren't in any way trying to release Jesus. They were just letting the women see that Jesus didn't even have to. He could have walked, he probably walked through those walls like he did other times. And the resurrection establishes that Jesus has the power he claimed to have. And not only that, the resurrection establishes this, that Jesus does what he promises to do. Think about it. In your own life, no amount of anything can keep God from doing what He's promised He'll do. He promises He'll walk with you. He promises He will be with you. He promises when you feel alone and abandoned that He is still present with you. He promises that when your marriage is not going the way you would hope it would go, He promises that He will be with you and begin to create in you the heart that will allow for you to move more fully into vulnerability, into intimacy in order to forgive or do what things that need to happen. He promises to be with you if you need to put up boundaries that causes someone to become angry with you and put up boundaries that causes someone to maybe separate themselves from you. He promises to be with you and He has the power to do it because He's the Son of God. He's God in flesh. He's involved in your life if you open your life to Him. That's the truth. That's the Gospel. And so Matthew records and confirms this in chapter 28, verses 5-7. through It says, The angel said to the women, Ladies, don't be afraid. I mean, I'm 
blinding you, I realize. For I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. That's a really important event. But there's something really, really important that you need to pay attention to today, and that is this, that he is not here. He has risen. Catch these words, because Matthew uses these words often throughout his gospel. Just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. Here's the other promise. Jesus said that he's going to meet him in Galilee. He said, there you'll see him. Now I've told you. He confirms a simple truth. One, that he's, that he's going to rise like he said he would. And secondly, he would go to Galilee and meet them like he said he would. Because Jesus does what he promises to do. He always does. He never lies. He will never lie in your life. So if you read in Matthew 28, 8 through 10, it says, So women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to him, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers and go to the Galilee. There they will see me. I love the way the message puts it. It says it this way. The women, deep in wonder and full of joy, lost no time leaving the tomb. They ran to tell the disciples. And then, then Jesus met them, stopping them in their tracks. Good morning. How you doing? And they fall to their knees and they embrace his feet and they worship him. And Jesus says, you're holding on to me for dear life. Um, you don't have to be frightened like that. There are a number of reasons to be frightened for them. But what I love about this is the incredible kindness and goodness of God. Think about it. He could have just gone to Galilee. He promised he would. That's part of his promise. But God is so gracious and so good and so kind that Jesus realizes that these people, his followers, have denied him. They've deserted him. They have the worst of them has been shown. And what I find is interesting is that Jesus in kindness goes ahead and meets them before he even fulfills the promise. You might be thinking, you know what, I have deserted the Lord. I've wandered from him. I've done things that I know don't please him. You might be in a position where you're going, you know, I just you gave me a promise, God. I don't know how you've seen my life. You see me. You know what? God never gives up on his promise. You can give up on his promise, but he'll never give up on his to you. And what I love about Jesus is he comes to these ladies and he doesn't say to them, you know, tell those 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 scared to death deserters. He says, he says, tell my brothers, I'm going to be in, in Galilee. And then he meets them a few times before. Matthew chapter 26, 31 through 32, it's, Jesus told them that this is going to happen. And so then he says, brothers, um, even though I told you, can you imagine? that's the incredible grace of God. Not only does Jesus keep his word, but he keeps his promise to be gracious to any who blow it or fail or don't keep their word. In fact, we're told in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, He saves us not because of the good things we have done. Aren't you glad to know that it's not on a performance basis? He's not saving you because maybe you haven't been in church for a while and this is you know, the Easter thing to do and you know, pat on the back or for any of you who have attendance pins, it's not about that at all. It's not about your performance. It's merely about His performance on the cross. He saves us not because of the good things we do, but because of His goodness, His love, and His mercy. It is a wonderful thing to know that your life, the promise he makes to you, is in his heart, not yours. 
So let me just share with you in conclusion some applications. The resurrection, I believe, is so important because it establishes who Jesus claimed to be. It establishes that he has the power he claimed to have. It it also establishes he will do what he promises to do in your life. And for me, this simply means my past can be forgiven. Think about it. My sins, the things I've done, the things I've blown can be forgiven. That is why the gospel is called the good news. I played a game with some friends the other day. I don't remember the name of it. It was just a few weeks, about a month or so back. And what you do is you take this little tablet and you draw, you get these words and you have to draw what those words mean. And then once you draw your drawing, you give it to the next person. It's kind of like telephone. And then they have to write what they think the words are and they give it to the next. And they have to draw the picture of what, you know what I mean, how that goes. But one of the things as I was doing the game, I started to draw and I started to kind of like tear the page or erase, trying to erase what I was doing. And they said, no, no, you can't do that. In fact, you can't even cross it out. What you start writing, you just got to keep with. And I thought it it was so hard. I mean, I blew it. It's not going to look like anything like it's supposed to. And I thought to myself, have you ever been in life halfway through a project where you just wish you could start over? You just blew it? Halfway through painting maybe your house and you look at it and go, oh, you've already made a huge investment. Maybe halfway through a marriage and you look at it and you go, I can't believe where we're at where today. Or halfway through raising a child or your adult children and you just wish you could do it over. Or halfway through your own life and you look at your life and you just say, oh, could I just have a do-over? And here's the amazing thing of the gospel that I just love about God's Word. Because if you're anything like me, you have all of us done things you wish you hadn't done or you said things you wish you hadn't said. You had thoughts you wish you hadn't thought. We're all like that. We all have regrets. We all carry guilt. We all feel bad about things. We all feel shame. We all wish we could do it over. In fact, in the last year, I've met with some people and they've been very honest about their past. One person said to me, you know, my wife and I are getting divorced in tears. We've just it's it's been a bitter fight. I'm losing my children. I have no hope for the future. I am so guilty. I've blown it. Can God ever forgive me? Just about a month ago, after one of the messages, I went out the hallway and I was talking with a person and the person with tears and eyes said, I've made so many terrible decisions. I, I know you talk about forgiveness, but I live with this constant guilt and shame. I just can't forgive myself. And the tragedy is there's people here today that are like that. It's just hard to get on with the present. And you can't move into the future because of your past, the guilt, the regret, whatever it is that's tying you down. But this morning, here's the message. This is not my word. This is the word from God. Colossians 3.14 says, Jesus has forgiven all our sins and canceled every record of debt we owed. Christ has done away with it by nailing it to the cross. On the cross is the payment for what has been done. You know what the resurrection establishes? God accepted it. So who are you? Who am I to not receive it? And this morning you can receive that. Your past can be forgiven. My past has been forgiven. And the resurrection is like, you know what? When you get these doubts and people and you get this shame coming at you, you run for you did this and you get this guilt. What you do is you release it by looking at the resurrection and saying, just like you would if you had a receipt from something you purchased. You know what? It's been purchased. The empty tune is the purchase of what has been given to you, and that's the forgiveness of God. 
There's also another thing that I just love about this whole resurrection. And I could give you all kinds of illustrations or applications. But not only is our past failures forgiven, our sin forgiven, but our present problems can now be managed. There is nothing that you face, there is nothing that comes your way that God can't handle. Do you know that Jesus made these outrageous claims? When I say that he has not only the the ability to claim to be who he said he is, he also has the power to do what he claimed that he could do. That's something you've got to live with and believe. And I know, I can tell you when I go through things, I'm going through things right now, that I have to just constantly go back into a grateful and thankful place, saying, God, in all these circumstances, I trust that you have the power to help me with my present problems. And it's not just for me. You know, Jesus made these incredible, audacious, outrageous claims. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you will step into my way, if you will allow my truth to live through you, I will give you my life through you to, to be able to come against these problems. He made these outrageous claims that said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, will live. Do you believe this? He says. A lot of people try to make Jesus just a good teacher, but he's not a good teacher if he said those kind of things. Can you imagine if at this point in the rest of my ministry, I started saying things like, I am God. Listen, folks, I'm the only way to heaven. I'm the savior of the world. I'm the light for all people. If you just would look at me in the sense of like, I'm bread, what I give you, you eat, it will save you. You would look at me and go, he's off the rocker. You would not allow me. You would not call me a good teacher, would you? That's what Jesus claimed, that he has that kind of power to come into your life to deal with every fear that you have. I think fear is one of the, if pride is the thing that keeps us from God and repentance, fear is the thing that keeps us from allowing him to move through us. I, like you, can have a heart that's bound with fear, but this resurrection tells me that one has come to walk with me, that I can move into what he has. And not necessarily will he just evaporate all the problems in my life, but he will give me the character to change my inside, because God always works from the inside out. He begins to work in your heart to change your marriage. He begins to work in your heart to change your relationship with your kids. He begins to work in your heart to provide for you the things that your heart most longs for. And he comes with you to do that. Now, I'm going to get back to Henry, because before my daughter and I were chasing Henry around and he was frozen, Henry was the kind of bird, like I said, he would sit kind of in the weeds and he'd come out in your hill, out at your ankles. And and we have this little walkway down to the barn and it's a stairs that you got to go down. And one day I remember my daughter, Kenzie, was standing up at the stairs and as she was standing up the stairs, I said, why aren't you going down? And she goes, I really want to play in the barn, but I'm afraid of Henry. Well, I can understand that. You know, she's this tall and Henry's about this tall. <clears throat> and so I said, well, let me tell you something. You know, Henry is called a chicken for a reason. <laughs> it really, if you just assert your authority, watch what Henry will do. So I went down the stairs and Henry, like normal, comes out and I see Henry coming at me and I went at Henry. And Henry turned tail and started running away. And I chased Henry around. I came back and I said, Kenzie, grab my hand. And Kenzie grabbed my hand. We started chasing Henry around. And Henry was, you know, he should have had the, you know, he should have gone into that scared state then, but he didn't. And I said, now you do it. And she went ahead and did it. And she did it in the authority of what she had. And she went out and she started chasing Henry. And I left. And about a half hour, hour later, I came back and she's still chasing Henry. (laughs) This is what the resurrection tells you. You are not alone. 
When you have these things in your life, you have the ability with God to grab his hand, to begin to understand his way, his truth and his life. And you begin to walk with him as you walk with him. All the fear, all the things that Satan wants to bring to you, all the circumstances that come into your life. You have the authority of God. Jesus is with you hand in hand. And you know what he wants to do? He doesn't want you to live just in this, this scared dependence. He wants you to grow up and be a son and a daughter in Him. That you begin to exert His authority, His life through you, so that you can begin to face those things in the power and the way of Christ. That's what the resurrection does. And one last thing I'm going to share with you. The resurrection does that I just love about this. Is that it gives you great security about your future. Not only in this, in my heart has my past been forgiven. Not only has my present problems can be managed because I have Christ with me to face any of those fears. I also have the truth that my future is secure. You know, it's, it's really interesting. The resurrection is all about hope. Hope means that you don't have anything to fear. You don't need even to fear death. The greatest enemy to any person. You know, it's been said that you're not ready to live until you're ready to die. Do you believe that? And you can be certain of God's presence now and forever. And you don't have to fear death because, you know, death isn't the end. Easter can make an eternal difference in your life. It's all about hope. This past week, um, I had a call on Monday night. And my mom went into the emergency room and I went down on Tuesday early and came back late Thursday night to prepare here for Friday and Easter and I spent that time with my sister, with my mom, in a very critical situation. And it was just one of these things that you talk about managing your present problems. My family knows. But beyond that, you know, it was really, really cool. I know my mom, when she's going in and out of lucidity and not really sure what the future is going to be, whether she would be present with us or whether she would live, whatever. I had this incredible security. And I knew that I would see her again. I don't believe all of you have that. It's the gift that God wants to give you at Easter. He wants you to know that your future can be secure. It's not based on your performance. There's two ways to get into heaven. One is through your own performance, which you try really hard. You do really a lot of good things. In fact, you can't just do a lot of good things. You have to actually be perfect without sin you actually have to not just live like Jesus, but you have to actually live like as Jesus did. You have to be him in that sense. In fact, it's not batting 300 or 400, it's batting 1,000. And what God says, if you want to really know his peace and his presence and security of a future that you can have in heaven forever with him, it's as simple as this. It's plan B. It's what the cross is all about. It's what Holy Week is all about. It's that he came to actually die for your sins, knowing that you're not perfect, knowing that you have through your sins separated you from God. But God loves you so much. He comes after you that you might have a relationship with him and that your future can be forever secure, not on the basis of what you do, but on the basis of what he's done for you. And some of you are saying, I want that security. And it's not just a security for some future thing. It's the, it's the fact that God enters your life. Now heaven, in that sense, begins to transform you within so that you can have heaven forever. And so I just want to close this message and just say Easter is all about hope. And where is your hope today? When it comes to your past, would you like to have every sin Everything you've ever done completely forgiven. Would you like a clear conscience? It's available today. 
Would you like God's power to help you manage the problems in your life? Would you like the resurrection power of Jesus to come side by side with you to teach you? And it will be difficult and painful to actually move into obedience into areas that have been patterns that you've lived with that now he's going to change so he can begin to bless you. But you know what? If you open your heart to him and open your hand, he will walk with you and give you his power. And for some, you might be in that place where you just don't know about your future. It is very much like this. Um, you live with a sense of fear. You're not ready to live because you're not really ready to die. And today, Easter is all about saying, you know what? I need you, Jesus. I desire to have you in my life. You need to know a Christian is not somebody who accepts religion and then attends religious services and does religious things. A Christian is simply... Somebody who has a relationship with God and is willing to submit, kiss the ring in that sense daily to be transformed, to be more like Jesus, who then begins to have hearing that attunes itself to God in your life. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head and I'm going to invite some of you who need to do this. Because the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. You know that you need your past forgiven. There are some of you here who... You, you know you need Christ in your life right now to face the, the struggles and some of the things that you're, you're enduring. You, some of you have walked away from God and you're ready to come back and you're saying, I have made a mess of some things or my heart isn't right and you just need to reach out right now to him. And some of you are saying, I want to know this life today and forever. I want my future secure. And if that's the case, I just ask you to pray this simple prayer. Jesus Christ, forgive me. I trust you. I follow you, I will get to know you, and will have a relationship with you. If that's your prayer, it doesn't matter how you say the words. It's all a matter of the heart, and God sees. And guess what? God hears. He's attuned to you. He has that ability to tune into you right now. Father, thank you for these decisions. Thank you for this Easter and the hope of it secure and and make safe all these things by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.